Welcome to this episode of Out of the Best Books, the podcast where we deep dive into classic literature and have conversations about what we've learned and discovered along the way. We love all things books and reading, and we want to share our love of the classics with you. We hope to inspire you to read along with us and join in the conversation. I'm Laura. And I'm Anity. Let's get started. All right. This week, we are going to be covering the first eight chapters of book two of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. But as just as a quick recap, last week we talked about book one, which has six chapters. And basically what happens is we're introduced to several principal characters. We start with Mr. Laurie, who is traveling. He's making his way to France. On the way, he meets up with Miss Manette, who essentially was an orphan for like 15 years and then just finds out that her father is actually still alive. So Mr. Laurie is taking her to Paris where they're going to go and get her father, who has just been released from prison where he was for 18 years. So so he was released from prison. It is not evident. Nobody really knows why he was in prison, but it has altered him mentally, physically, emotionally, everything. And he's picked up making shoes. And when they go to get him, they actually go get him from a wine shop in Paris owned by Madame and Monsieur Defarge. They get him and they take him back to England, basically. And that's pretty much the end of it. There's sort of this key phrase that they keep saying throughout it, and it's recalled to life. And we find that kind of theme throughout the book with lots of different things. So that's important to remember. So that's where we are when we begin book the second, The Golden Thread. Yes. And I I read somewhere that The Golden Thread is Lucy's golden hair. And so she's kind of the thread that's going to connect everybody together. Yeah. And you see that. That makes sense. She certainly does. So one last thing I want to say is that Book one takes place in the year 1775. Book two begins in the year 1780. And in fact, that's the name of the first chapter is five years later. So now it's 1780. The golden thread. So Presley is always talking about her golden hair. It, oh. She doesn't, her hair's not really golden. It's like light brown, but she's always like, and she doesn't like us to comb it, but we'll say it may your hair looks so golden when we comb it. And so she lets us. <laughs> That's really cute. Yes. So this chapter, it starts out with, it's called five years later. So it's 1780 and it kind of begins explaining the bank and the bank is supposed to be a symbol of England and France. And so it's dark, it's old, it's cramped. The people that work there are ancient and if they aren't ancient, the bank has made them appear ancient. Yeah. It's much like England and France where they weren't willing to change. So nothing about this bank. Nobody in this bank wants anything to change. They like it this way. Yeah. And that's very evident in the fact that it talks about how they're they're proud of its smallness. They're proud of its darkness, its ugliness, it's incommodiousness. No natural person would be proud of those things. It's just somebody that's stuck in something and doesn't want to change. And so they project to the world that there's nothing wrong. I love this, this sentence in the first paragraph that says, they were even boastful of its eminence in those particulars and were fired by an express conviction that if it were less objectionable, it would be less respectable. Mm-hmm. So like, I think that the leaders of the countries are like, if things got better, yeah. 
we wouldn't yeah. be as important or maybe they wouldn't need us or like keep people in fear and keep people not really liking it. Then they won't do anything. I mean, I don't know, but yes. yeah, it does seem like a very strange mentality, but I think it's accurate too. Yeah. They're, they're keeping things that way for a reason. It just talks about if you were to take your money out. Where the oldest of men made your check shake as if the wind yeah. rustled it. Well, they examined the signature by the dingiest of windows, which were always under a shower bath of mud from Fleet Street and which were made the dingier by their own iron bars proper and the heavy shadow of Temple Bar. So like it just gives you I think he does a really good job of giving you a picture of what things seemed like in the bank. Yeah. And it talks about how your money either comes out of or or goes into wormy old wooden drawers. Your banknotes have a musty odor. And you get to the end of it and you're like, why would anybody want to bank there? Right. But it does make you ask the same question about the country since it's a, a symbol of that. Why would anyone want to live there? And the truth is, if you were not highborn, a gentleman, gentleman's family or an aristocratic family, you probably didn't want to live there. But where would you go? You have no options. Exactly. Yeah. So then it just goes into a couple paragraphs where it's talking about how at that time they would put you to death for anything, mm -hmm. like any little breaking the law. I mean, you were put to death. <laughs> like, yeah. Death is nature's remedy for all things. So yeah. anyways, it just lists tons of reasons why it could end for you. Also, it has that paragraph where I said, like, if you weren't young, if you weren't old, the bank made you old. So mm -hmm. they would take a young man into the, into Telson's London house. They hid him somewhere till he was old. They kept him in a dark place like cheese until he had the full Telson flavor and blue mold upon him. Then only was he permitted to be seen spectacularly pouring over large books and casting his breeches and gaiters into the general weight of the establishment. So I thought that was funny. They made them stink like old cheese. And yeah. <laughs> you were there. They were going to destroy you. Yes. Basically. Okay. So then we jump over to Mr. Crunter. If you remember, he was the messenger from the bank. He, he gets up in the morning and he starts yelling at his wife. He actually, he actually throws a boot at her and he yells at her because she is praying. And he, he basically accuses her of praying against him. She's like, I'm not praying against you. I'm praying for you <laughs> because she, I think she knows that he is kind of What's the word? Not lost, but like he's not. Well, he's doing things that are yes. not legal. And she knows yes. that. And he's also so she, not, he's obviously not a nice man either. So she's praying Where, for his soul. <laughs> well, she's praying for his soul and probably also praying that, you know, where death is the remedy for all things. If he was actually caught doing the things that he does, which we'll learn about a little bit later on, he would probably be put to death. So that's very worrisome. <laughs> yeah. And another interesting thing is that his boots are always clean when he comes home at night, but they're always dirty in the morning. And so he's doing something in the night and his son kind of notices that he's doing something in the night that is not as worthy of what he's doing during the day. So, and then they also talk about how him and his son mm -hmm. look a lot alike. Their eyes are too close together. There's a lot of like twin imagery in this book, mm -hmm. which will come out later. His son is there. His wife is praying for him, but he doesn't like it. At breakfast, he yells at her again. And she's like, I was just asking a blessing. And another interesting thing is his name is Mr. Cruncher. And it kind of reminds me of how Thomas Hardy named his characters with their 
personalities or whatever. Yeah. And Mr. Cruncher is great at work. He does what he's supposed to do and he's a really good employee, but at home he's a mess. I mean, clearly he's not very nice to his wife. And he thinks that she's praying against him so that he won't make money. He'll lose his job or something. So after she says, I'm just asking a blessing, he says, don't do it, said Mr. Cruncher, looking about as if he rather expected to see the loaf disappear under the efficacy of his wife's petitions. I ain't a going to be blessed out of house and home. I won't have my whittles blessed off my table. Keep still. So she, he thinks that she's praying against his ability to make money, I think. Yes. After breakfast, Jerry and his son go to the bank and wait outside for a job. And he's told that a porter is needed. So he goes off to do that job and his son stays there sitting on his father's stool. Oh, and he notices that his boots are muddy and he has rusty fingers. Yes. That's another clue. And that- he, yeah. He's like, where does all that iron rust come from because he's like it's he doesn't get it working for the bank why is there always iron rust all over his fingers and the one thing that I did want to add in there too is there is sort of a commentary on the little boy also because it talks about how when he wasn't engaged in making forays through the bar he would inflict bodily and mental injuries of an acute description on passing boys who were small enough for his amiable purpose so he was a total bully. He'd just look for any kids that were smaller than him and hurt them. I missed that. <laughs> uh, yeah, like bodily and mental injury. So he's either, you know, mocking them, calling them names or hurting them physically. And, you know, you talked about the twin comparison there. And it it does talk about how he and his dad sit outside of the bank like a pair of monkeys, which is not a very flattering <laughs> simile there, but uh, there it is. You know, Jerry Cruncher has the, he has the spiky hair. It yes. also talks about how his son has spiky hair, but it's not as sharp and spiky. Yeah, that's right. And that's so funny because honestly, when I read chapter one, they don't describe Jerry Cruncher at all except this spiky hair. So you're imagining him just like this nice messenger guy. He's not at all. (laughs) So it is kind of, it's funny now to get a deeper description of him, deeper understanding of his character. And remember that he also has very spiky hair. Yeah. One more thing is before he yells at his wife, it talks about how at first he was sleeping heavily, but by degrees, he began to roll and surge in bed until he rose above the surface and his spiky hair looking as it, if, it must tear the sheets to ribbons. <laughs> so anyways. Yeah, that's right. Apparently that's his hair was very spiky and sharp. So chapter two, a sight. We're going to get lots of sights in this chapter. It's pretty good. We're so with Mr. Cruncher because he just had gotten a job. Uh, he's told that he's needed at the old Bailey. Jerry is kind of nervous about that. He keeps saying, I, I know the Bailey, but I know other things lots better, you know, like I'm, which is basically a courthouse, but he's sent to the Bailey because Mr. Lori is there and Mr. Lori may need him as a messenger at some point. So he just needs to be on hand just in case Mr. Lori needs him. And so this clerk at Telson's bank hands Jerry a note to take with him. And he arrives at the Bailey to find out that there is a big case that's about to be presented to the court. Jerry's like, oh, what are they trying this morning? You know, are they trying forgeries? He finds out they're trying somebody who's being charged with treason. 
And the sort of going, the sort of traditional punishment for treason is being hung, drawn, and quartered, which like who came up with that? It's so awful. I know. I was telling David about it. I was like, so basically they cut you open, they pull out your insides and burn them. And then they decapitate you and cut your brain into quarters. Yeah. But first you're like hung until your body is stretched and you're almost dead, but not quite. And then they cut you open while you're still alive. Really? Yeah. So I was telling, I was telling Charlie and David about this and they were like, and and then how it drew crowds and like the worse, the punishment, the more crowds came. And I was like, what is wrong with these people? And Charlie goes, they're bored. I was like, <laughs> you have to be really, I I just, yeah. I don't think I could be bored enough. But I have a thought about it too. And that we'll talk about a little bit more because he, because Charles Dickens really, I think he, he's kind of poking at that a little bit, uh, especially in the next couple of chapters. He gets to the Bailey and outside of it, you see all of these sort of instruments of punishment. There's the pillory. And Dickens says it's a wise old institution that inflicted a punishment of which no one could foresee the extent. There's the whipping post, very humanizing and softening to behold in action. It says altogether the old Bailey at that date was a choice illustration of the precept that whatever is, is right. An aphorism that would be as final as it is lazy. Did it not include the troublesome consequence that nothing that ever was was wrong? I Yeah, I think he's just has this commentary about like how ludicrous are these things and really very demented that even was ever a thing. What if he's guilty? And the guy is like, he's going to be guilty. I think yeah, they yeah. pretty much usually yeah. everybody was guilty and they would end up doing these things to them. Yeah. And so Jerry Cruncher gets there. And he stands next to a man and asks what's going on. He's like, nothing yet. The treason case is about to start. And the man says, with relish, okay, with relish. Yeah, he'll be drawn on a hurdle to be half hanged, basically until he's almost dead, but not quite. And then he'll be taken down and sliced before his own face. He'll watch it while he's alive. And then his inside will be taken out and burnt while he looks on. And then his head will be chopped off and he'll be cut into quarters. That's the sentence. And Jerry's like, if he's found guilty, and there you go. Oh, they'll find him guilty. Don't anyway. be afraid of that. Yeah. Good. <laughs> There's lots of people there. They talk about the judges. There's the defense team, the prosecuting team, which they don't call by those names necessarily, but that's basically what they are. And then they bring the prisoner in. And he also notices that there's a gentleman wearing a wig who is there, but the entire time he's just like staring at the ceiling. (laughs) And it's so funny because everybody, their attention is drawn to wherever there's, whatever is happening in the court, everybody's faces goes there. Whoever is talking at the time, their attention is just locked right there. And this guy, his attention is locked on the ceiling the entire time until the end. We'll talk about that. Okay, so we get a little description about the prisoner who's coming in. He's a young man of about 25. He is a man of good stature and he's good looking. He talks about how his face is very sunburnt, but he's obviously very pale. Like he's carrying himself uh, with comportment and he has pose, all things considered. But even though his, his cheeks are sunburnt, the paleness comes through. 
because he is actually terrified as you would be because he's being accused of treason. Yeah. And he knows what the, what the punishment is. Yes. And I think this is, so this is kind of what I was talking about before the sort of interest with which this man was stared and breathed at was not a sort that elevated humanity. In other words, everybody's looking at him like hyenas looking at their prey, anything else that's about to devour something. It's not flattering for these people to be looking at him that way because they are almost wanting him to be found guilty because that is this sort of sick and twisted delight to them. Mm -hmm. But it has happened throughout all of history. Like, why did the Romans go to the Colosseum? Why did they take delight in watching the gladiators fight? And they often had a say in whether the gladiator who was beat down to the ground was killed or not. It was the thumbs up or the thumbs down, right? Can you imagine being like, yeah, kill him? Like, what? But all the time, or people watching people being burned at the stake, like, I cannot even fathom that. That to me is like the most gruesome, awful, horrific way for somebody to die and to be standing there watching it. Or later on, even in this book, like watching people get their head chopped off. It's crazy to me, but I think it's this sort of twisted, natural part of us that we have to like put aside. We often talk about the natural man and and how it, that is an enemy to God. I know that's part of the natural man. This desire to see other people suffer and like to get some sort of pleasure out of it. It's just yeah, I, I awful. Wonder, you know, it's like maybe they just understood things differently. I mean, the way we understand life and like the world now, we in our society, I mean, 99% of us could not watch that. You know what I mean? Like we don't like yeah. to see people suffer, especially like, if somebody breaks their arm and their bone is, looks funny. I can't look <laughs> like, yeah. like I'm out of here. <laughs> so, yeah. Like if our kids ever got really hurt, I hope their dad's home. I mean, I would step up. I just can't. Yeah. Handle any At the other. same time though, I think about reality TV or like TikTok videos, which it's not watching people suffer necessarily, but it is watching like people being crazy doing stupid things and we get yeah. sort of this weird pleasure out of it. We you do know? like to watch people suffer. I mean, not probably physically and like die, but we love to hate people on TV. I think that maybe that's what it is. It's like, oh, look, I'm not that bad. You know, <laughs> it's sort of this validation for ourselves, I guess. Maybe they're like, at least it's not me. <laughs> at least it's not me. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. True. It's hard to understand for sure. So we find out that this young man, his name is Charles Darnay, and he had just pleaded the day before not guilty to the charge of treason. And basically what it comes down to is they feel like they feel like he has assisted the French King Louis in his wars against the English and that he'd been going back and forth. They said that he's like passing these lists they don't have like much evidence at all, but there was a servant who came forward and like said something. And so now he's being accused of treason. And I thought this was really interesting too, going along with what we're talking about. It says the accused Charles, who was and who knew he was being mentally hanged, beheaded and quartered by everybody there, neither flinched from the situation nor assumed any theatrical error in it. It's like... He just listened and took it in. He wasn't like melting down, even though he knew 
every person there was hoping he would be found guilty and they were kind of already planning on his demise. Then we're drawn to two other people in the courtroom. Okay. So, so far we have Jerry Cruncher that we know about. We have Mr. Lori. We have Charles Darnay, who's been accused. We have this random guy in a wig who's staring at the ceiling. And now we know that there's a young lady and an older gentleman. And we learn that it is Miss Manette and her father. So they are present in the courtroom. That's pretty much what's happening in this chapter. And we just jump right into the next chapter where we dig into the whole trial. I think we find out at the end of that chapter that... They're there to testify against Jarnay. Yes, that's, well, that's what they say. That's what the guy next to Jerry says. Yeah, I, maybe that's not, I mean, maybe that wasn't their intention, but that's what the people think. That's what they're there. Okay. Yeah. That makes more sense. Chapter three is called A Disappointment. And I guess we'll find out who's going to be disappointed at the end here. Yes. <laughs> Probably the crowds. So oh, um, one thing I'm going to add in here really quickly, we also do find out that the prosecutor, the term for him is actually the attorney general. Okay. So the, uh, the prosecutor is the attorney general. Okay. So go ahead. So, yes. So going into that, the attorney general in the beginning of this chapter insists that the jury has to sentence Charles to death because the witnesses are unimpeachable. I don't know what he thinks. It's like, this is one of those chapters where the first couple of pages are just like, I don't know. I do better with the dialogue and what's like happening. And then when we get into these pages where it's just, you know, Charles Dickens talking. Yes. <laughs> it's like, well, these are the pages that make me think about one of the tips for reading Dickens, which was like, don't get so caught up yes. in, in like the wordiness, the the cultural references, the, you know, this History. and that and that. Read it, but like lightly read it. Don't worry about it too much. Jump into the actual story part of it. Good. I love that. So we're going to, we're going to do that. I read it and I'm just like, I don't even know what they're <laughs> saying. Okay. One of the men that is representing, is it John Barstad? That is one of the, I think he's the witness. Okay. Yeah. Remember. So he was the one who basically they call him the unimpeachable patriot. He's kind of the whistleblower. The defense lawyer basically yeah. shreds his credibility he does. Through the cross-examination on this guy, he shows that he's a gambler and a brawler and he's untrustworthy. And we find out that he owes Darnay money. And so that is his reason for testifying against him. The lawyer's like, well, he has a reason to do that, you know, to testify against him. So the wig gentleman with the papers before him is the solicitor general who we'll find out later is Mr. Striver. And then the wig gentleman looking at the ceiling yeah, and he's a lot like um, Madame Defarge, who's like, you know, she's always knitting and looking like yeah. she's listening. And he's like, he looks bored. And he's just looking at the yeah. ceiling the whole time, like he's yeah. not paying attention. But actually, he is the guy behind the, he's the brains behind this operation. Yeah. Yeah. So then Mr. Laurie is called to be a witness and he testifies that he was on a ship with Darnay five years ago. Then Lucy testifies that she was also with him on that ship, I believe. And she had her father with him, with her, and he wasn't well because it, it was just after they had, you know, rescued him basically. And he was still not himself. And that Darnay had helped her care for her father on the ship. But then she tells them how there were two other Frenchmen with him. And they had these lists with them. Anyway, so there's this dialogue in here that says, 
you know, then she, he starts asking her questions. Were there people with him? Yes. There were two French gentlemen. Had they conferred together? They had conferred together until the last moment. Had any papers been handed about among them, similar to these lists? Some papers had been handed about among them, but I don't know what papers, what papers. Anyways, so she eventually feels bad. She feels like this section of her testimony is what is against him and isn't going to be helping him. But the interesting thing is, is there's some people... So they're being accused of being French spies, but there's actually people in the courtroom that are spies, but it's not them. Yeah. Not Darnay. They get through all of these witnesses. I can't, does the father, the father does testify, but he's like, I wasn't really myself. I don't really know what was going on. Yeah. He had no memory of any of it because they had like, what we have to realize is this time when they were on the ship, she says it was three and a half years earlier. It was more like it must have been more like five because it was right after they retrieved Dr. Manette from yeah. the wine shop pretty soon after he'd been released from prison and bringing him to England. So he's very much like in a fog and he knows that he knew he was in a fog. Yes. <clears throat> so his testimony is, is not much, but I liked this. She does testify that Charles had made a joking comment that George Washington might one day be popular as popular as George the third. And that kind of doesn't make him look very good. Everybody in the courtroom is like, uh, heresy. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Okay. So the man who, the wigged man, who's always staring at the ceiling is his name is Sidney Carton. He seems bored and uninterested. And then they call a witness to identify Darnay and Carton writes something on a piece of paper and hands it to Striver, who is the head attorney. And basically they then say, are you sure this was the man that you saw, Mm -hmm. you know, that was doing what you said? And he's like, yeah. And then they kind of say, well, what about this man? And so Carton takes his wig off and Mm -hmm. he looks just like Darnay. And he's like, you can't say which one of them it was. So, and it's this witness, I believe that is the spy. Later, we'll say it was him. Okay. Um, Carton, he is the brains. He looks uninterested. He looks bored, but he's the one that's thinking through these things. And he's like feeding the head lawyer what he needs to do. There at the end, it talks about how they really did uncover this Barsad. It says he was a hired spy and traitor, an unblushing trafficker in blood, and one of the greatest scoundrels upon earth since accursed Judas, which he certainly did look rather like. The virtuous servant, Cly, who's another one that they had interviewed and totally shredded his entire argument, was his friend and partner. And so they really just took apart the whole entire case. So Darnay and Lucy are kind of making eyes with each other the whole time Mm -hmm. during this. They have, they kind of, they're kind of, I don't know, what's the beginning of something, right? But Carton also seems to like Lucy. You'll find out later that he's like, you know, he thinks he's as good looking as Darnay, but he's not as good because actually he is, even though Darnay is a prisoner, he's still like in better shape and less of a mess than Carton mm-hmm. is. But anyway, yeah. so they notice that Lucy is fainting or Carton notices that. And so he's kind of paying attention to her. Lori tells Jerry that he wants him to wait for the verdict and then take it back to the bank. So that is why Mr. Cruncher is there is to take this verdict back to the bank. So then afterwards, they just kind of have this discussion about, oh, thank heavens you saved me. Darnay was expecting the worst. He's like, 
it's the end for me. And so the jury does come back and say not guilty. Well, I think it's interesting there at the very end because Jerry is, he sees the paper that says acquitted and he's going to take that back to the bank. And he says, if you had sent the message recalled to life again, I should have known what you meant this time. He's like, I get it. Okay. Yes. Kind of funny. Like, well, now I get it. The only other thing that I wanted to plug in here was just this constant reference to the crowd being like a bunch of blue flies. Whenever there's something interesting that arises or, you know, while the jury's out or whatever, it talks about there being the buzz of flies again. And it's just all the people like, you know, quietly talking and it's, it's just this feeling. And he says specifically the blue flies, because they're the ones that basically eat dead things, you know, (laughs) they would be present after he was killed to eat the leftovers. One thing about Dickens, I believe is he like, he mentions things over and over and over Mm -hmm. again too. So yeah, it's yeah. not like you get one little reference. He'll say it over and over, like the spiky hair and like. Yeah. And which is, again, kind of like what we talked about before. Another one of the tips is that you don't have to worry too much about minor characters, even, you know, a detail. If you miss a detail as you're reading, he will remind you of it later. Yeah. He's taking care of his readers. It's kind of an amazing characteristic of his works. Or like the knitting, like the lady that's knitting all the time, right? I mean, he brings that up several times and like, many times and Carton staring at the ceiling. He brings it up several Mm -hmm. times in the same chapter. So it's like, it's just funny. I just noticed that, but he repeats little things that are maybe that because those are important. So chapter four is called congratulatory. So this is directly after the verdict has been read. They're kind of leaving the court. Everybody's (laughs) congratulating Mr. Darnay about escaping from death. That's a good thing. We hear about Dr. Manette, who's looking so much better. You don't even recognize that he's the same guy who is just this pathetic little shoemaker in a garret in Paris several years earlier. Like you say, Mr. Darnay obviously has some affection for Miss Manette. He kisses her hand. Mr. Stryber, who is the solicitor general, the basically defense attorney, we get a little bit of description of him. He's a man of little more than 30, but he looks 20 years older. And he very much wants all the praise, which I mean, you know, give him some credit for sure. But he's like, I've done my best for you, Mr. Darnay. And my best is as good as another man's, I believe. And Mr. Laurie, who Mr. Laurie is definitely like the sweet peacemaker guy. He feels like he should say something like much better. You know, you're, you're better than others because it's clear that Stryber wants him to say that. So he does. I love this paragraph on the first page. So we're talking about Lucy helping her father only his daughter had the power of charming this black brooding from his mind she was the golden thread that united him to a past beyond his misery and to a present beyond his misery and the sound of her voice the light of her face the touch of her hand had a strong beneficial influence with him almost always she's going to be like that for everybody yeah and she really is i also read somewhere that dickens writes women like this like he has this idyllic he'll write characters of women that are perfect yeah. And I think it's interesting that Lucy is based on the, the woman he was like having an affair with at the time. There you and go. So, <laughs> so I guess that's how he felt about her. She was the golden so, Yeah. But we also, so she has that sort of influence over her father. And obviously her father is like, I've been away from my daughter forever. And, you know, we're building this relationship. 
and they're very affectionate and, and love each other very much. And he sees the way that Mr. Darnay is looking at his daughter. Now he is looking at Mr. Darnay with dislike, distrust, and even some fear. He's like, huh, I see what's going on here and I don't like it. Well, And there's like a flash of him recognizing something in him. And then it kind of goes away. Yeah. So like, I think Dr. Manette knows something about him somewhere back in the back of his mind. Yeah. But he's not quite yeah. with it enough yet to like. Yeah, he can't make the connection mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. I wrote down that's foreshadowing. I think you're right. Then we start talking about Mr. Carton because nobody had made any acknowledgement of his part in the day's proceedings because nobody knew about it. There is like this conversation that goes on between Mr. Carton and Mr. Laurie. They talk about business and pursuing business. And I feel like sort of my takeaway was that Mr. Carton is probably this very brilliant man who just like doesn't care. He's just sort of wandering around doing whatever. Like he he doesn't have a major direction in his life. Is that? Well, and of- Mr. Laurie doesn't understand that he was the brains behind what happened. Yeah. And so he's kind of irritated by his presence. Carton, he's kind of creepy. Like he comes out of the shadows. He's not really involved in the, all these main characters. He's always on the outskirts. So Mr. Laurie is kind of like, I I don't know. I think Carton is kind of fishing for compliments on what just happened in the courtroom. And Mr. Laurie's like, I don't really know why you're still here. Or what you're looking for. Cause they just, anyway, so I just don't think he gets it. And Carton is always drunk. Always. Yeah. So he just comes across as very careless and slovenly and nobody really gets him. Yes. So then, you know, Darnay and Carton actually go to dinner together. And I, I saw on a YouTube video that was talking about this conversation that she said it was the most awkward dinner conversation ever. And yes. I thought that was really funny. I don't know if you want to go to that yet, but um, yeah, let's jump right into that. Yeah. So one thing Carton asked Darnay is he's jealous because Lucy and Darnay seem to have a thing for each other. Right. He can tell. And he's like, was it worth it to be tried for your life to get compassion from Lucy? (laughs) You could have died, but was it worth it? (laughs) Anyways, but like she could be there. Yes. (laughs) That is kind of a funny thought. I think sometimes when you're that in love, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) I get to see her again. (laughs) Worth it to go through that just so that she'd be there fighting for you or whatever. This dinner conversation, Carton says, but do you think I particularly like you? And he says, really, Mr. Carton, I've not asked myself that question. And then he's Carton says, but ask yourself that question now. And he says, you've acted as if you do, but I don't think you do. And then Carton says, I don't think I do. (laughs) I don't think I do. Yeah. Really? I don't think I like you very much. (laughs) Like, why are you having dinner together? This is very strange. So Mr. Darnay, they do drink to Miss Manette. Yes. Uh, So that's kind of funny. And then Carton says to Mr. Darnay, he says, you think I'm drunk? And Darnay says, I think you have been drinking, Mr. Carton. You know I've been drinking. Since I must say so, I know it. And here's where we kind of get a summation of, of this guy. Then you shall likewise know why. I'm a disappointed drudge, sir. I care for no man on earth and no man on earth cares for me. And there it is. Yep. He he is a heavy drinker. He doesn't care about anybody and he feels like nobody cares about him. And this is kind of interesting too, because this is Carton speaking, right? He says, do you particularly like the man? 
Why should you particularly like a man who resembles you? There's nothing in you to like. You know that. You hate the fellow. So there it is. Yeah, and he's looking he in the mirror keeps, when he's saying this. And he, yeah, he's looking in the mirror. And so really, he hates himself for whatever reason. Kind of as a result of him hating himself, he hates the guy who looks a lot like him too. And of course, there's probably like some jealousy and stuff there too, because it's very obvious that Charles Darnay is like high born. He's well educated. He's handsome. He's well put together. And he also has the affection of Miss Manette. He has everything that Sidney Carson does not have. And so there's obviously jealousy and evidently hatred there. He's just like, I could have been so much better. I could have been so much more. And look at yeah, look at what I've done to myself, right? Right. So the next chapter kind of goes into that. Carton is the jackal yeah. in this. Striver is the main attorney and he's ambitious. He's climbing the professional ladder. And then Jackal is this drunk that is actually the brilliant one that is right. behind everything that's happening, right? I love this. Sidney Carton, idolist and most unpromising of men, was Striver's greatest ally. He was his like secret weapon. That yeah, was. because like you say, Mr. Striver, he was ready. He was built. He was climbing the ladder. He was very determined, but it says he did not have the faculty of extracting the essence from a heap of statements. So he seriously was lacking. They kind of were a perfect pair. It worked out. I feel like Striver's kind of using him, but. Totally. I feel like he's kind of okay with it because he doesn't have the drive that Striver does. So, but he can still use the his brains. And he probably, if he's like a lot of other people that I know this way, he does take joy in the puzzle, you know, the challenge of cases and, and figuring this out, even though he doesn't, doesn't care about the people at all. He just enjoys the challenge of the case. I love this too. Was rumored to be seen at broad day going home stealthily and unsteadily to his lodging, like a dissipated cat. (laughs) Very funny. So yeah, he's drunk. He's going home drunk during the day all the time, but basically because he goes to Striver's office and works all night long. So in this chapter, he gets there and there's alcohol on the table ready for him. And this is kind of funny. He wraps his head with a wet towel to keep him awake and working through the night because he has a hangover. And so this is what keeps him awake, which is like, how does he work brilliantly drunk? And well, and maybe that's actually how he does his best work. Yeah. Or maybe. So they kind of talk about Darnay a little bit. Carton says, I thought he was a rather handsome fellow. And I thought I should have been much the same sort of fellow if I had any luck. And so then they kind of go into talking about going to school together. Basically, Striver and Carton went away to Paris for like a study abroad kind of Mm -hmm. school. I read somewhere it's really important to pay attention to what characters speak French. So make note of that, that Striver and Carton speak French. And then you kind of see what happens here at night when they're working. Striver lays back in a chair and relaxes and he kind of like plays with some papers and shuffles them. And Carton is the one that's like deep in the work. So he's the one that's trying to figure out. It's this next part where Striver asks Carton, like, why didn't you make more of yourself? What made you just be like that? And he's like, I've been like this since school. You knew me. He would do other people's work at school, (laughs) but not not his own. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just bizarre. And then later, to super creepy. I think that Striver might be, well, they're probably the same age, but Striver, Striver is creepy. Okay? Yeah, he really is. And that's what it says because in the chapter before when it describes him, it says he's 
He's a man of 30, but he looks like he's 50. And he's sort of like this plump little just greasy fellow. You know, that's how I envision him too. So, And so I didn't really like how he was talking about Lucy because he kind of brings up Lucy and her beauty, right? Mm -hmm. And Carton, he keeps asking, well, isn't she pretty? And Carton won't admit. Yeah, to him that she that he's attracted to Lucy. So after the night, Ben Carton staggers home, and at this point, he throws himself on the bed weeping because he just feels so bad about himself and what he could have yeah. been. And you know, he's got this Darnay who looks like him, but is such a you know in his mind a better person. And the last paragraph of this chapter, so he's basically laying on his pillow weeping, says. Sadly, sadly, the sun rose. It rose upon no sadder sight than the man of good abilities and good emotions, incapable of their directed exercise, incapable of his own help and his own happiness, sensible of the blight on him and resigning himself to let it eat him away. This is a very modern view of depression, what he wrote here, because it's like he didn't, he couldn't help himself. Like he couldn't Mm -hmm. dig his way out of this. Dickens... I don't know if this is hundred percent true because we didn't talk about this last week, but had you ever heard that he suffered from schizophrenia? No. So mm-hmm. I read that somewhere and I don't know. I, so just take that with a grain of salt. I don't know sure. if that's true. That it manifested in him as depression. He's kind of putting his own, he had the same problem. Like he could not dig himself out of this yeah. unhappiness. So we did talk about, you know, how he did struggle with depression, anxiety, and OCD, probably, yes. as well as insomnia. So lots of issues there. So I don't and know about schizophrenia, but he definitely suffered from depression and he was incapable of his own help and his own happiness. And so sometimes I think we need to, I struggle with that with like family members of mine that have anxiety because I don't, I mean, I do. I think everybody does a little bit about everybody does a little. Yeah. It's hard to understand sometimes that they can't help it or they can't, you know, I'm just, anyways, I'm insensitive and it's hard. It's hard to really understand something that we don't have an experience completely. And maybe it actually makes it harder if we have experienced it a little bit and we're like, but we can deal with it. So why don't you? Yep. Do you know what I'm saying? Because maybe what we're experiencing is hard, but it's not so deep and all encompassing as what, you know. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is what I did and it worked. Right. Well, you don't know if it's going to work for them. And I think we also need to remember always that everybody is doing their best. Everybody. They're doing the best they can with what they have and what they've been taught and what they're dealing with. And if we can just remember that and try not to be judgmental, if they said, I mean, like Carton, he couldn't help it. Anyways. He, he needed help because left to his own devices, he was destroying himself. He really did need an outside source of help. And in some ways that was Stryber because he's still able to do the profession that he went to school for. He's not like some star attorney or anything because he won't really apply himself, but, but he's still able to do it to an extent because of Stryber. Yeah. Good point. So obviously that's not all the help he needs, but it's, you know, a little bit. Okay. Chapter six, hundreds of people. He drives this in <laughs> <laughs> over and over and over. Okay. This one is, I think the longest chapter in this section, there's a lot in it, but we're just going to, so if there's stuff that I skip, you can go back and say, Oh, let's throw this in, but I'm going to kind of just go through. Okay. So it's four months later. We are visiting Dr. Manette's house. It's in the little street corner, not far from Soho square. 
So Mr. Laurie and Dr. Manette have become very close friends. And we find out that he often goes to their house. He will walk out before dinner with them when the weather is fine. And when it's not fine, when the weather's not nice on Sundays, he would just go be with them as the family friend. They would talk together, read together, look out the window, and just getting through the day. The third reason he would go to their house a lot is because he happened to have his own little shrewd doubts to solve and knew how the ways of the doctor's household pointed to that time as a likely time for solving them, which again points to Lucy as being this calm, just a presence that helps people to figure things out. (laughs) It's not a very eloquent way of saying it, but she has created a lovely household for her father and for anybody who comes there. We also find out that Dr. Manette, he is a doctor. And because of that, he's called on by lots of people to help them. Uh, His scientific knowledge and his vigilance and skill in, in conducting ingenious experiments brought him otherwise into moderate request, and he earned as much as he wanted. So Dr. Manette and his daughter Lucy are doing just fine financially too. So life is good for them. On this day, Dr. Laurie shows up at their house. He's greeted by Miss Pross, who is that redheaded beast of a woman who pushed him across the room earlier in the book. Very protective of Lucy. She often calls her her darling. Anyway, she calls her Ladybird. And I have wondered, is that where, so Lyndon Johnson, his wife's name was Lady Bird Johnson. Wonder if that's where that came from. Mm-hmm. Lucy had tastefully, beautifully decorated the home. It's very nice. Of course, it's not like this mansion or anything like that, but it's just very nicely done. But what's kind of interesting too is that in the house, like on one of the main floors, sits the shoemaker's bench even though the doctor doesn't do it at all anymore. It's sort of like sitting there as a reminder. And Mr. Laurie's like, I wonder that he keeps that reminder of his sufferings. All right, so Miss Pross, Mr. Laurie, they have sort of a little talk. It's really pretty funny. Miss Pross says, I'm very much put out. Mr. Laurie says, why? I don't want dozens of people who are not at all worthy of Ladyburg to come here looking after her. He's like, do dozens come for that purpose? Hundreds. <laughs> that's where we get the name of the chapter hundreds come to look after her which is actually not true it's not true and that's what's really funny it sort of ties the whole chapter together and she's like look i've lived with her since she was 10 years old i you know basically it's really hard for her to see this happening she's like there's just all sorts of people who are not worthy of her they're always turning up and she even says that Dr. Manette is also not worthy of, he's not worthy of his own daughter, but she says it's really incredibly hard to have crowds and multitudes of people turning up after him to take Ladybird's affections away from me. So there's kind of this strange relationship <laughs> happening, I think. But we also do find out that she is like, she really is a wonderful person. She's extremely unselfish and really a very faithful servant. Well, it's funny because she says like, there's only one person worthy of her and that's my brother. If he hadn't made that big mistake, right? Which the big mistake was basically he took everything from her. Like he stole He's a total loser. Like he's horrible. And so you're like, wait, but he was worthy of Lucy. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, That was funny. Yeah. He says, does the doctor in talking with Lucy never refer to the shoemaking time yet? She says, no. And yet he keeps that bench and those tools beside him. And she says, ah, but I don't say he don't refer to it within himself. Yeah. 
He must think about it. And I like that he says, does he have a theory on why he was sent to prison? I don't think we really know why he was sent to prison. We don't. And it talks about it later too. Just, I think that he asks him or there's sort of this part where it sort of alludes to him being like, nobody really knows. The doctor still hasn't figured it out. Miss Pross says Lucy thinks he has a theory, but it hasn't been talked about. And then they talk about how he's probably afraid to even think about it. Like his time there. He's afraid. And then she says, he's afraid of the whole subject. Then Mr. Lurie says, afraid? She says, it's plain enough, I should think, why he may be. It's a dreadful remembrance. Besides that, his loss of himself grew out of it. So he came out of it, not himself, not knowing how he lost himself or how he recovered himself. He may never feel certain of not losing himself again. So he's afraid that's going to happen again. Yeah. That alone wouldn't make the subject pleasant, I should think. Right. And then she does talk about how there's sometimes at night that she'll hear Dr. Manette get up and she, he's walking up and down and up, walking up and down, walking up and down. <laughs> she says this just over and over. But we learned that Lucy will get up and walk up and down and walk up and down mm-hmm. with him until he's able to calm down and yep. go back to sleep. Lucy and the doctor finally come back to the house. They keep talking about this corner of the house, which must echo like crazy because they can hear footsteps along time before the people are actually there which is kind of interesting and so they show up miss pross is super excited to see them they're looking very well the doctor was a pleasant sight too looking on at them and telling miss pross how she spoiled lucy in accents and with eyes that had as much spoiling in them as miss pross had now there's four people in the house but still no hundreds they sit down to dinner this wonderful dinner and it's half english and half french Still no hundreds of people. Yeah, only two. I mean, yeah, two suitors. And then after the dinner, they go outside and they're sitting under the plane tree just talking and still no hundreds of people. But Mr. Darnay does come. Okay, so now there's five people. Okay, so but it's so funny because Mr. Darnay presented himself while they were sitting under the plane tree, but he was only one. So still no hundreds of people. But it's funny because when Mr. Darnay shows up, Dr. Manette greets him warmly. Lucy greets him warmly. And Miss Cross gets a case of the fidgets and she has to leave because she <laughs> she doesn't she gets a fit of the jerks because she doesn't like him. They're just having a conversation. And he tells them that at the Tower, so like the Tower of London, he says that they were doing some alterations. There was like this old dungeon. In all of the cells in the dungeon, there'd be carvings that prisoners had put on there and things like this. And in one of them in particular, there was a place that said D-I-C, or they thought it did. They thought it was somebody's initials. And they were like, what does this mean? After a while, they realized that it actually was not initials. It said dig. And so they dug into the ground underneath that writing and found just ashes of a paper mingled with the ashes of a small leathern case or bag. Nobody's ever going to know what was written there because it was all destroyed, but he did write something and he wanted it to be known. They look at Dr. Manette and he's just, he's just like ill because this has totally taken him back right to his 
time in prison. He blames it on the rain, like that song, right? Blame it on the rain. Yes. He yeah. blames it on the rain. He's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's just the rain. Look at all the raindrops on my hands. I want to go in. <laughs> but the rain does begin to fall. And this is really kind of funny. So, and Mr. Carton shows up. Okay. So now <laughs> there's more people, but still not hundreds. Well, and I like this too. Like when it talks about him coming and it says, Lucy sat by her father, Darnay sat beside her. Carton yeah. leaned against a window. So he's just awkward. <laughs> yes. And I love that because Charles Dickens is so good at characters. He builds these amazing characters and you get to where you almost know what they're going to do because he has built them so well. Every time. The rain just begins to fall. And because of the echo in that corner, the raindrops, they're coming down very heavily and they sound like footsteps. So now it sounds like hundreds of people rushing the house because it's just hundreds of footsteps. And Sydney Carton is like, there is a great crowd coming one day into our lives. They kind of are like, we'll welcome it too. Miss Manette is like, she's like, when I've been alone, I've imagined them the footsteps of the people who are to come into my life and my father's. And Sydney Carton says, I take them into mine. Like I take these people into my life. I ask no questions and make no stipulations. There is a great crowd bearing down upon us, Miss Minette. And I see them by the lightning and I hear them with the thunder. Here they come fast, fierce, and furious. That also, I think is quite a bit of foreshadowing. And the very last line says, perhaps, Perhaps see the great crowd of people with its rush and roar bearing down upon them too. Okay, so chapter seven, there's a reason I didn't take French. This is the reason <laughs> because I cannot pronounce French words, but I think it's Monseigneur, I don't know. And so in town, that's what this chapter is called. We're back in Paris and there is a Monseigneur, a powerful French Lord. Every two weeks, he has this banquet or reception or whatever. And- I love the the imagery of the beginning of this chapter. His inner room, his sanctuary of sanctuaries, the holiest of holiest to the crowd of worshipers in the sweet rooms without. And he's drinking hot chocolate. But mm. this hot chocolate takes four servants to serve him. Yes. One of them has to, I mean, do has each has a job to do. And he and then it even <laughs> says, like, eh, he couldn't live without one of them or two of them. Like, yeah, it's yeah. important because <laughs> they do everything for him. Okay, so he's kind of evil. I mean, you kind of get mm-hmm. this idea, right? But then we're going to meet somebody worse coming up in, later in this chapter. Like one thing he did was he didn't have enough money. And so he married his sister off to a rich farmer general. So he yeah. could have more money. I like this sentence. Monseigneur had the other truly noble idea that it must all go his way tend to his own power and pocket. This is funny because right now there is something called the Murdoch, Alec Murdoch. It depends on how you want to say it. That's what's going on right now. Um, So there's a bunch of documentaries. Like there's one on Netflix, there's one on Discovery Plus, and then you can watch the actual trials that are going on on YouTube. And so like Mm -hmm. the last two days, that's all I want to do. Basically, these people were awful. They, his family had been in politics, law, in South Carolina for like 150 years. Basically his wife and son were shot and he's on trial because they are accusing him of shooting his wife oh, in trial. Oh my gosh. Those trials are, I heard the true crime podcast on this not very long ago. That's crazy. So that trial's going on right now. Yeah. What happened? But it just reminded me of this. It's like, 
basically he he was a lawyer and he would his housekeeper fell and died on his property and he convinced her sons to like sue him and he represented them for suing him and then he stole the money that they won anyways wild reminded me of yes this, but yeah oh it was crazy all I want to do is watch that. And then like reading about the trials in this is just kind of making me rem- like think about what I just watched on TV. But the next couple of pages are, are those things that we want to do- not get bogged down with, but he talks about how he doesn't care about what anybody has to say. And, but I do think that it's, I don't know why, but this kind of thing just always intrigues me. This commentary on how these people in the upper classes that everybody is like, you know, supposed to look up to and have as their leaders, they don't know anything. He mentions the military officers destitute of military knowledge, uh, naval officers with no idea of a ship, civil officers without a notion of affairs. Honestly, what it makes me think of is the leaders of our of our world today, especially of our country. Like there's people in these positions, politicians. It does talk about the only thing they know is how to dress well. So like they don't know anything. And he even calls it a disease, the leprosy of unreality. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so it does go into that, but it is long and deep. it is, it is. Yeah. We can totally <laughs> jump over that. I mean, okay. like that's really the only parts of that that I had underlined because I was like, okay. Yeah, it's long. Basically, there's another guy at this reception. He's the marquee. He gets mad that he wasn't treated better by Monsignor, whatever, Mm -hmm. however you say that. Because he just kind of left and is done with the party. And he's mad. And so the way he takes it out on people as he gets in his carriage and he likes to run through the city, making people scared and dodging out of the way. Like, this is fun. I mean, a wreak havoc on the commoners. Yeah. It's a you know? twisted person because it talks about how there is no, there's no sidewalk. There's no place for people to walk. Right. Everybody is on this one lane, small road. And so he knows he's going to run people over. It's disgusting. Yeah. It says it appeared under the circumstances rather agreeable to him to see the common people dispersed before his horses and often barely escaping from being run down. This is entertainment to him, right? Well, this is so awful. This just makes me like, so what happens is they run over a little child and the child dies. It says that carriages often didn't stop to check on the wounded. They just kept going. Is the valet, that's how they say it on the Mm -hmm. recording. Is he the driver of the carriage? I believe so. Okay. So he gets down because he's like, what just happened? Right. He's, he's worried about what happened. And the marquee says, what is that awful noise? Was that a child? Yeah, it was. And you just ran over. So there's a man in the street. That's like shrieking. You killed him. He's dead. I mean, this guy is just incredible. Why does he make that abominable noise? Is it his child? Well, yes, yes, it is. So it is. Yeah. You just ran but over even him. if it wasn't, anybody with even half a heart would still be shrieking at yes. that horribleness. Like, like, that's what I'm saying is like, he's like, well, why is somebody screaming? It must have been yeah. his kid. Yeah. I mean, that's just horrible. So his response is, well, you people should take better care of your children. Like you should have been watching them. Well, yeah, but you're tearing through the streets like a maniac for fun. And he says, how do I know what injury you have done my horses? Yes. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I'm worried about me. Basically, he just tosses a gold coin at the man. Like, this will take care of it. Thinks that'll take care of it. Yeah. This neat. Now, I think this is the same man that wrote blood in wine. 
on the uh, wall, I believe, because it's the same name, Gaspard. I'm not You're sure. Right. But yeah, yeah, good. Anyway, so he's basically in the street crying and holding his child. And somebody, which actually turns out, turns out to be Defarge, says, well, it's better that he died really quick. Yeah, I mean, he's like, that sounds awful. But when you see it in the context, he he comes out of the crowd. He's hugging the man. He's like, he's doing everything he can to comfort him. And he's like, he's like, I, he says, I know all, I know all, like, I understand. He's just like, be brave. And his words of comfort in that moment basically are just, it is better for the poor little plaything to die so than to live. It has died in a moment without pain. Could it have lived an hour as happily? And that, that is awful. But I think that Defarge was going, look, France is a horrible place to live. Yeah. And these poor children that are having to grow up in this, it's your child is probably better off. He didn't feel anything. There was no pain where if he lived, he would be constantly in pain and constant suffering, which as a parent, that would not bring me any comfort at yeah. all. But <laughs> I think that that's, I feel like that's what he was trying to do. So then the Marquis says, oh, you're a philosopher. Mm-hmm. And then he tosses him a coin. I don't know. It's just bizarre. Like this man is just, this is the whole new level of evil I was talking about. So he tosses him another coin. Well, what happens then? He says, without even looking a second time, he leans back in his seat and he says, okay, let's go, right? Let's take, let's take off again. And was just being driven away when, and it talks about how like he just thought that he'd in, he had broken a common thing that could be paid for. Then a coin comes flying into the carriage and that makes him very angry. So he's like, stop, who hold the horses? Who threw that? And he looks out where Defarge had been standing and he's not there anymore, but he, the man is still there on the pavement with his son. Who else is there? Adam Defarge is standing there knitting. And then he, you know, he yells out, you dogs, said the Marquis. And oh, oh my gosh, I wrote down evil. I would ride over any of you very willingly and exterminate you from the earth. If I knew which rascal threw at the carriage. And if that brigand were sufficiently near it, he should be crushed under the wheels. Like he's like, I don't even care about you people. If I knew who threw this coin in, I would run right over him. And then he just says, he leans back and he's like, go on. Basically all the carriages that were at that reception are coming by, you know, a doctor, the the lawyer, the ecclesiastic, the farmer general, they're all kind of all coming by. It says the rats had crept out of their holes to look on. So these are like the common people, right? That he's calling Mm -hmm. the rats. And they remained looking on for hours. They're kind of standing out there for hours. And there were some women there that were trying to help with the child, Mm -hmm. I believe. And they kind of stand there for hours too. And the man had taken the child away and hidden. When the one woman who had stood conspicuous knitting, still knitted on with the steadfastness of fate. This next little part, the last part of this chapter, where it says the water of the fountain ran, the swift river ran, the day ran into evening. So much life in the city ran into death, according to rule, time and tide waited for no man. The rats were sleeping close together in their dark holes. Again, the fancy ball was lighted up at supper. All things ran their course. And I was kind of thinking about when bad things happen in your life, it's really hard to watch like the whole world just keep going. 
Oh, absolutely. You know what I mean? Like time just kept going and people just kind of went back to their, what they were doing. Definitely. It's hard to look around and go, oh, how are all these, how are all these people living a normal life? You just, you just go, man, I am just being left behind because I'm drowning in grief and everything else carries on. How can this be? And you just want to be part of that. Like you want to go back to that, like living that normal life. And I liked that little last paragraph. I thought that was insightful. Yeah. Very good. Monsignor in the country. Oh, you should, you speak way better French than me. (laughs) Probably anybody who speaks French who heard that would be like, well, that was embarrassing. So no, I don't, but I wish I did. Monsieur the Marquis carries on. And this is really funny. He's going out into the country and something happens that he cannot control. The sun is setting and he's really annoyed because the sun as it's setting comes right into his carriage. He's like, it will die out directly. (laughs) And then it does. And so he thinks that he can control. I really think that a lot of these people thought they could control everything including nature. And you know that they were completely delusional. Okay. So he comes to this village. Its description is, it's like a normal village with all the church tower, windmill, forest, whatever, but it has a poor street, a poor brewery, a poor tannery, a poor tavern, poor stable yard, poor fountain. (laughs) And all its people were poor. And why were they poor? Because of all the taxes they had to pay the tax for the state the tax for the church the tax for the lord the and it's like what about the people what are they supposed to live on like it is wild but it's how they keep people in subjugation like it's oh it's so awful and i think this little paragraph was really interesting it said few children were to be seen and no dogs as to the men and women their choice on earth was stated in the prospect life on the lowest terms that could sustain it or captivity and death in the dominant prison on the crag. Anyway, so he looks at the people and they're just miserable and worn out and sad and poor and and probably starving. But he notices one guy, this guy, it's called the grizzled mender of roads. And he calls him over to him. Monsieur the Marquis says, Hey, I I didn't, I pass you on the road. And he's like, yeah, I, you passed me on the road. He's like, I noticed you were looking at something very fixedly. What would you, what were you looking at? And the grizzled old man says, well, the man under your carriage, which sounds like a ghost story you tell when you're like 12 at girls camp. And then he's like, what, what man? He's like, he swung by the chain under the carriage. He's like, who was he? And the guy's like, he wasn't from here i've never (laughs) seen him and he was like he was swinging from the chain how was he not suffocated and the guy demonstrates that basically his head was like what i understand you tell me if you understood differently his head was like out from underneath the carriage and like like (laughs) looking back tilted way back looking way back so that he could you know look up at this guy and breathe and whatever but he said that he was like white like coated with all the dust from the road obviously so he'd been riding that way for a while but he's not there anymore and he's obviously like mad at the guy that he didn't yell out ah there's a man under your carriage but <laughs> and they're like okay well well monsieur the marquis says 
okay, well, you guys need to keep an eye out because if a stranger asks for lodging, you don't let him stay here. So I think he basically just takes off then. Yeah, that's pretty much all that happens there. So then they carry on. At one point, they come across a little burial ground. And there is a woman there and she's kneeling, but she asks them, she asks him to stop. She goes right over to the carriage door and she says, you know, please, a petition. And he's like, Ugh, always petitions. And she just says, for the love of the great God, my husband, the forester. He says, what of your husband, the forester? Always the same with you people. He cannot pay something. She's like, he has paid all. He's dead. Well, he is quiet. Can I restore him to you? She says, alas, no, but he lies yonder under a little heap of poor grass. And she's like, there's so many heaps. And she's just asking if he can grant her a little wood headstone, basically. Well, it's not a headstone, just a marker, a grave marker, so that when she dies, she can be buried next to him because there's so many graves, because there's so many people dying all the time, because it's just, they're just all completely destitute. They're starving. They're dying. Yeah, she's like, if I die, nobody will know where he is. And they'll just put me somewhere random. Yeah, and I want to be buried next to him when I die. They basically just completely push her away and just carry on. So he gets to his chateau, and the very last thing he says is that he is expecting Monsieur Charles from England. And we get to find out some more about that in the next section that we will talk about next week. Yeah, next week we're going to do chapters 9 through, I think, 16, right? This is getting exciting. It will just keep getting better and better. Like, all of the classics, they just, they're very masterful at, like, doing the slow burn. Yeah. It gets better and better and better. I like it. I feel like I have a really good grasp of the characters. Like, I'm not confused. Like I told you, when I first read the plot, I was like, it seemed so overwhelming. (laughs) I was like, how am I ever going to? follow all this but it's not too bad yeah. i just finished the commandant's girl by pam jenoff oh jenoff. i like her i do too and she's one that i keep forgetting about and yeah i've like read a bunch of her books and they're always really good and i obviously she is world war ii heavy because that's like all that she writes but that's awesome and they're always like kind of different different perspectives different stories that you don't necessarily hear and so This one is about a girl who is a Jew who's like hidden in plain sight. She actually marries a Jew right as the war is getting pretty bad. They're in Poland. Her husband is a part of the resistance. And so he actually leaves, you know, they're like brand new married, like six weeks or something. He leaves and she ends up going to the ghetto with her parents. This is in Krakow. She, because he's in the resistance, he's able to smuggle her out of the ghetto. He can't get her parents because they're old and it's just much harder to get older people out. And she's able to actually go live with his Catholic aunt, who's very wealthy. She's a socialite. Everybody really likes her. And, but she's also very much a part of the resistance. And then she goes to work right at Nazi headquarters for this, the commandant, who's like the main guy over the main Nazi guy over everything there in Krakow. And it's just quite an adventure from beginning to end. And Pam Jenoff is not afraid to kill people. I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
in her books. <laughs> books. Ridley's <laughs> over there going, what? <laughs> That's like, funny. You can tell when an author like doesn't want their characters killed off. And when they're afraid for things to get too hairy and she, what I've noticed in her books is she is never not shy away. That's awesome. I mean, we're not. <laughs> I Well, no, it makes it really like enriching <laughs> most of the time, but okay. anyway, yeah, it was really good. I enjoyed it. So I am reading a book called Solito hmm. by Javier Zamora. Oh, wow. It is so good. Okay. I'm listening to it because that's pretty much the only way I can take in books. I mean, I read A Tale of Two Cities and the books we're reading, but since I'm reading those, I'm only listening to other books, but he narrates it. So I really like that. It's a memoir. Anyways. So he was from Guatemala and at age five, I think earlier than five, because he does says he doesn't really remember his dad. His dad immigrates to the United States. And then when he's five, his mother does. Mm. And he stays there with his grandparents and I think his sister. All along, they're planning to send him here. Well, they do when he's nine years old by himself. Oh, Like with a group, like a coyote brings him over. So he's in Guatemala and then they like, I think they take him to Mexico and then he has to pretend like he's Mexican. I don't really... I guess I didn't catch really why he has to pretend anyways, but he has to have like, he has to practice a Mexican accent and sure. he has to like rehearse, you know, that this is my mom and this is my sister, even though it's not. And it's just so ugh, scary to think about sending your nine-year-old. Oh my gosh. Off on their own. And you know, he's worried about like nine-year-old things like yeah. He's worried about like, cause he's, you know, he's pretending like he's this one lady's son. Mm-hmm. And so he has to like sleep with her and her daughter. And he's like, what if I fart in the middle of the night? <laughs> they spell it or hear it or whatever. Or like, you know, the coyotes will be like, okay, you have three minutes in this bathroom, put on your best clothes, get clean. And he's just like, you know, he's nine years old. Can you imagine sending your nine-year-old boy alone into a bathroom that, you know, after he's been like on the see for days and days and days or like how does he get clean in three minutes yeah and then they're banging on the door and like get out get out get out you know mm-hmm. i don't know it's just it's kind of fascinating but yeah to hear his i don't know i just don't know how you send your nine-year-old no, alone. terrifying and like the casualties are so high and it's just just awful have you read american dirt mm-hmm that was a really good one. And it was very eye-opening to me. Yeah. I thought that was, but I love this book just because it's his perspective. I yeah, mean, like he's telling it's a true story you yes. know? and he's telling, he's reading it himself. I just, yeah. it's very good. That's cool. I think okay. it was a, one of the celebrity book picks, but I'm not hundred percent sure. Okay. Like a read with Jenna maybe, or okay. I was trying to look that up, but I couldn't find it, but yeah, I would suggest it. And I would suggest listening to it because he does a really good job reading it. So. Cool. Okay. I'll look it up. We're so happy you joined us for this episode. We hope you will join us next week as we discuss chapters 9 through 16 of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. If you have suggestions for books we should read and discuss, please email us at thebestbookspodcast at gmail.com. We would love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share our podcast with your friends. We want to inspire and encourage as many people as we can to read out of the best books. 
As Thoreau says, read the best books first or you may not have a chance to read them at all. See you next week.